Greetings, adventurers, and welcome to the Shadow of the GM podcast, with me, your host, GM Shadow. This is episode 27 of Shadow of the GM podcast, and today I'm going to answer some call-ins, but also talk a bit about misunderstanding the GURP system, and also about system knowledge in general, coming on from another call-in from another show. So, without any further wait, let's start with those call-ins. Hey Barry, Jason here. Sorry about the background noise. Driving in the rain. Interesting episode on skills. So, as far as when to roll, when not to roll, I'm going to take a page of Arlen Walker's book. If somebody makes a convincing argument and you do not have their moral diplomacy, because they're supposed to be good at it anyway and convincing anyway, why would you make the thief make a roll when? They're sneaking up to backstab somebody because they're supposed to be good at it anyway. Seems like, um, I don't know, favoritism? Anyhow, the other thing I want to mention is build yourself, and this is a challenge I'll give anybody. Build yourself in GURPS. Build, take any of these games or skill games, take a starting character. Can you build yourself as a starting character and give you all the skills you should have? I can't. That was Jason there from Nerds RPG Variety Cast. So to get on the first point um, about Arlen's ringing, I mean, I, I really like that call and I've really enjoyed what he had to say. And, you know, I did agree with pretty much most of it. I mean, I guess the thing about rolling for something you're good at, that, that is the issue with when you hand wave stuff. And I guess that was my problem with overusing the rule of cool if you do ever use it, is about the fact that where do you draw that line? And, you know, I do kind of agree with the idea about, you know, I mean, the way I always think about it is that your character is your character and you are you and you are not your character. You are someone who's playing that character. And so, you know, I mean, his column is a lot around about as well. The idea about um, player knowledge wasn't it going into <clears throat> characters. But the fact is that if, if your character is more competent than you are, you should be able to roll to reflect that mechanically um, to allow it if it's something they're good at. Now, I guess there is that issue about if you allow someone just to automatically pass at something because they're good at it, then that takes away from other people and having to roll. I think combat's a special situation, though, because my argument is I would always want someone to roll for stuff in combat because combat is a very heated situation. So to take that example a bit more abstractly, you know, if you were, say you were role-playing and you were trying to persuade your way past a guard and a character made this really, really convincing argument and they had a really high diplomacy skill, I might say, well, let's not just roll. I'll just say, do you know what? That was a brilliant... You thought up as a player you've got a brilliant excuse to get past all this and you've kind of out-reasoned it so i might choose therefore you know not to make them roll or to make them roll with a bonus or whatever because at the end of the day i feel if someone makes the effort to do something you should really reward it and it's not a case of bypassing the rules it's a little bit of you know i think as a player from my own experience as a player if i've thought of something really amazing and really good that's maybe a bit bigger <laughs> myself about if I put a lot of effort in and I made a really convincing argument and the GM even says, wow, that's brilliant, but then just roll the dice and I roll the one and it fails, that kind of takes away from the fact that me as a person, as a player, I've actually, you know, thought of something really cool. <clears throat> so there is a danger about basically buffing back and knocking back your players when they, they do things really cool from a player perspective. Now I might be happy if they gave me like a plus five or whatever on a roll and I still fluffed it because I'd be like, well, fair enough. Do you know what? They said it was really good and they gave me a bonus to it, etc. And so, I mean, part of Ireland's argument, though, about the combat knowledge, yes, I accept the argument that <clears throat> when you're fighting, you don't describe every sword swing. However, one thing I would like to point out is people who do understand military tactics do use military tactics when they're playing games. So, for example, <clears throat> they will in games like, I'm talking about 3.5 here, they might they would know about flanking and how using flanking, so they will manoeuvre themselves into position to get advantage. Okay, that's a rule in the game, but that's a rule in the game that's come about because of military tactics in games. People will take higher ground and use higher ground for advantage. People will lie prone to make themselves smaller targets. Now, that's potentially, not always, because they might have read it in the rules. But a lot of the time, people know these things from their own experiences, well, be it military experience, be it you know experience of war games or whatever, but that's their own knowledge being brought in and applying it to the character. Now, that actually gives them a numerical advantage in the game. So my counter-argument to that is, if there are rules in the game which allow people to understand military tactics, combat tactics, to give themselves bonuses to themselves in the game, why would you not allow people who have non-military understanding of things in other skill tests and add that as bonuses to it if you see where i'm coming from so i think this kind of it's one of those you could argue this i think for millions of years and go round and round in circles and pros and cons and bounce it backwards and forwards and i think again it comes down to you as a gm your players your player group as to what they feel is acceptable should you allow it should you not <clears throat> for things like that 
this hero's going to go around and around in circles. But yeah, I think combat's a special situation. There's a saying, you know, your character might be good at making diplomatic speeches in a sort of calm, reasoned way. In the middle of combat, if an enemy is trying to stick him with a sword and he tries to use diplomacy to convince him something, I would expect a bloody roll in that situation because that's a very stressful situation. You're not going to be able to sit there composing an argument. You're doing it on the fly. In the same way that if you try to backstab someone in combat, that's on the fly in the heat of combat. Try to do it in a sort of stressful situation. So just because you're good at it doesn't mean you automatically succeed if you see what I'm saying. So I think there's an element there of whether there's a risk of failure, risk of danger. <laughs> in the same sense that most rules say, if you're riding your horse calmly through a village and nothing's happening or through a nice clear meadow, you don't make a ride check unless you're a really evil GM. Because why would you? Because that's just a normal sort of situation. But if you're riding your horse into combat and trying to do fancy maneuvers, you're expecting ride checks. And again, it's this thing about when do you think a dice roll is necessary and when is it not necessary? And it is about level of competence, but it's also about whether it's appropriate given what else is happening in the scene. And that might be a bit woolly, but then again, that's why we have GMs in games, isn't it? That's why you know the GMs are there to try and keep that, I don't want to say consistency, because that's probably the wrong word, but to kind of have that referee nature that was in more games and things to kind of keep that ruling process defined so that the games keep moving and you don't end up arguing around the table all the time about what should happen and what shouldn't happen. Pick up on your next point about building yourself in GURPS. Well, you see, that's the advantage of GURPS is that if we're just talking about having enough points to build yourself as a character, then obviously, as we know, Jason, you're awesome and you have millions of skills and you're a very skilled person. So all I'd have to do is give you more points, maybe a thousand points, two thousand points. I don't know, whatever it takes to build you as a character, I will give you those points to build yourself and you can do it. If you're saying there's not enough skills in the game, again, grab supplement to bring out new skills. So just make new skills and give yourself enough points to do it. So in actual fact, in GURPS, I could argue you could build anyone in GURPS because you could just keep giving them enough points to build the things they have. How long it would take is another matter. How easy it is to work out what your skills are, etc., is always difficult. I guess my problem to get that tongue-in-cheek thing out of the way because, you know, obviously I'm so awesome there isn't enough points in GURPS to build me either. Um, <clears throat> but seriously, the argument could be made about any system. I mean, try building yourself in Dungeons & Dragons. You know, does it have enough whichever edition? I mean, does that create an all-rounded person? Could you create the person you want out of that system? Because at the end of the day, it's only six stats and does that really cover everything about you? Do you, like, shoehorn them in and do your skills actually fit into those statistics? And again, you can argue this one backwards and forwards. Some people might say yes, some people might say no. And a lot of it's really subjective. It depends, you know, what's an intelligent skill, what's a wisdom skill. So you might say, well, that skill should be covered under wisdom, but you might say, yeah, but I'm actually really good at that skill, but you've, you know, but my intelligence is higher than my wisdom based on what we said about myself six months ago. And so, like I say, you can go around and around in circles and get yourself really, really tied up on it. And I guess the question is, does it really matter? Do you want to, you know, how far do you go to create a realistic person in any RPG system? You know, can you really 100% simulate anything? Um, I always think this about war games when people try and recreate battles to see if they can make it the same historical outcome. It's like, yeah, but how realistic? As much as you try and simulate the military situation on the field, how realistic is that game really going to be? I mean, if you think about the real complexities of the real world, you can't really account for 100% of things that could influence stuff. So it's only ever going to be an approximation model simulation. It's never going to be 100% accurate. And so I think you have to accept some amount of, um, I guess, fudging and sort of vagary around it. And it's how you kind of work that. And so, you know, it's one of those things that I don't necessarily poo-poo skill systems just because you couldn't build yourself 100%. It's about understanding that there will always be limitations to that system and how we simulate it. And again, it's up to you and your group as to how realistic you want to be and therefore how you manage that. As I've said, you mentioned Barbarians of Lemuria before, and I do know that <clears throat> that um, GURPS has things like wild skills as an option. I mean, GURPS is one of the systems that the more you know it, and Che is very much the expert on this, there are ways of simulating a lot of things that people bring up because Steve Jackson, Sean Punch, Dave Pulver, the rest, they've had a lot of experience with this, and I think they've had a lot of this feedback before, so they have devised optional rules and rules around sort of managing those situations. Uh, like I said, if you look at GURPS Ultralight, it's very much your profession as a skill that you have just for that one system. And that's something you could easily pull over to the main system if that's the way you want to play it. If you'd rather just have your stat block and then like a profession skill, then you can run it that way instead and just totally change it. Again, you'd have to modify the points value to reflect that. But you still have your advantages and disadvantages. So it's one of those. It's about how much you want to really tailor the system to reflect how you want to run the game. Um, and so, like I said, it's a very much a depends. It's up to your player group. It's up to you, really. So, you know, that's why I don't really have an issue with skill systems, I think, because it's up to you how much you tweak them and how much you want to go into it. And I think I accept limitations inherent in systems, and I always try to find the mix of what's got enough detail for me to feel like I've got enough variation in characters without it being too complicated 
that there's a massive skill list as long as your arm that could take forever for people to pick and you end up with that sort of, you know, decision paralysis where they can't spread points out enough across enough skills and things. And so, you know, it depends what you really want for a system. I don't have a problem with skill systems. I don't have a problem with profession kind of systems. You know, anything that works for you, I'm quite happy with either. I can, I can run with any of them. And um, the profession thing gives you a lot of power back to the GM, like I said, where it's much up to you and the player to sort of agree what's a skill for that. But, you know, lots of other games like Fate, for example, talks a lot about that, about having equipment and things. You know, lots of games have it where it's kind of like a vague statement about who you are and do you just happen to be carrying stuff that relates to your profession, etc. And I like it in some ways. And sometimes I like very much more defined Um ones where it's all very specific so yeah again that's a rambly statement as per always but it's one of those that you know that's why i guess i don't have a beef with it and i don't think you really have a beef with it you just like i think jason just like to challenge us all you like to keep us on our toes and make sure that counterpoints are argued i know you'll play pretty much anything with us so it's not an issue but like for example we're going to be playing boot hill soon and boot hill doesn't really have an integrated skill system and they're kind of bringing in the optional one around that but again it's very vague it's not really that specific and other villages because i think for boot hill mostly we're going to be riding him and horses and shooting people with guns and that's the main thing we're going to be doing we're not really too worried about diplomacy checks and gathering information etc that'll happen as through role play i think more than actual skill roles but we'll see so anyway tremble on i shall now go and see what colin has to say hi barry uh, you was talking about skills and i've got no problem with skills i can take skills or leave them in the system but if they're going to be there i think for me they're a great source of inspiration and and something that perhaps doesn't get talked about so much, is how you can use the skills in your si- in your system to convey setting, much in the same way as you might with looking at an equipment list, where you've got some of these um, all-singing, all-dancing game systems that try to be all things to all men. If you modify the skills and you modify the equipment and you modify some of these sort of big old lists that you get in a game, straight away you're conveying something to the players and i i think there's real value in that good show man catch you colin green there from spike pit podcast i'd say 100 percent agree um with using skills to convey setting it's one of those things i always loved i mean i talked about chaos even before with uh, call of cthulhu that the cthulhu setting if you look at the character sheet there's the library use skill there's loads of space for foreign languages things for cult things for cthulhu mythos it's like just reading that sheet gives you some sort of sense about in in the game i guess more than setting what's important i think that's really really useful from your skill list to give you that idea um like you said of what what the world's going to be about you know if your thing's got loads of things like you know ancient arcana if it's got things about you know occultism it's got things about demonology it gives you the sense that these things exist in the world and it kind of really helps draw you in i think just to say something slightly negative about the system i've been going on about a lot of groups one thing i didn't like for example when i was reading the GURPS rules is there is a skill called a hazardous material which is about managing hazardous material which is actually fine from a modern setting point of view because it's maybe about radioactive things but then it also says that it covers if you're doing a fantasy campaign using like alchemical materials or magical components now that's fine in a mechanical sense and you can see how those skills might overlap what i don't like about it is that i wouldn't like as a GM or a player having a fantasy character that has written on his character sheet hazardous materials because who on earth back in those times would have said, oh, I've got hazmat training or hazardous material training. They're not going to say that. And so I would actually propose that if I was running the game, and this is why I was talking about thinking about using my OneNote thing where I was going to like link skills and stuff on there is to tweak some of the names appropriate for setting. And so that might be, you know, magical components and or something, you know, I couldn't think of a name at the time. I need to think of something for it, but actually make that name specific to that setting. And therefore, when you're going into the fantasy setting, if you see that name for the skill, it means more to you than it would do. If you're looking at it with a GURPS head on, if you're experienced in playing GURPS, you probably, you might have read the books, you might know that. But I think this is the issue sometimes with some of the generic settings is that if it's a generic name skill, it doesn't always kind of fit. Um, it's that thing about black grid, I like examples, piloting skill, where people don't think about piloting for boats and other things. They think of piloting as airplanes and still is a little bit about, you know, explaining those sort of things to the player. Sometimes it's a bit more evocative if it says, you know, boat piloting, plane piloting. And the way GURPS does it is you pick it and you pick a specialty, but that can be difficult to see from a player facing side if you don't know those things are kind of hidden in the depths underneath it. And so I think there is definitely something about tailoring your skills and your lists. So again, talking about GURPS from thinking of it from the generic setting, but the same if you're building your game. 
from scratch. It's about picking a name that's appropriate for the setting. <clears throat> and so your underlying rules might be the same. So say you're making a, a rule system yourself, not saying a generic rule system. Say you want to make a rule, rules light system yourself and you would a version of it that was for fantasy, a version of it for modern day, a version of it for future. Then, you know, the underlying skill behind your managing magical components or piloting vehicles or, you know, riding animals, etc., were kind of the same. That that rule kind of blocks that block could copy and paste across, make some tweaks to it based on the specifics around it. But the name I would change each time to be very specific to that setting to kind of bring that theme through. Because like I said, when you're reading the skill lists or when you're looking at the character sheet, it ought to kind of evoke that thing and really inspire you to think and think about those things from the context of the characters you want to play. You know, you might not think about playing an alchemist who's messing around with like magical chemicals if it just has has hazardous material in the rule book. If it says you know alchemical materials. Magical components, you might think, oh, that'd be quite a cool thing to have. I'd like it if my character had some sort of skill in that because then I can tinker with magic things and no magic exists in this world and I can make, you know, chemicals from, you know, magical components. And so that to me, I see, you know, I 100% agree that would really kind of evoke that setting, kind of really inspire you to make those characters. Anyway, I hope that's what you meant. If not, feel free to tell me that I'm going off on a totally random track, but <laughs> we'll see. Um, and actually, Colin, I know you've got a little bit further to say, so let's move on to your next, Colin. I actually think the handling of skills in D&D now is quite satisfying. You've you've still got the abilities, so your strength, dex, wisdom, all that stuff, and you've also got skills, and they take the form of a, a proficiency bonus. The other thing this allows for is if you've got um, people that, haven't specifically got a skill they can quite often still have a pop at something and the skilled person retains a clear advantage that advantage improves as they level up uh, with an improved ability bonus and if someone role plays out a situation or has a particularly good idea about something you can just grant them advantage or if someone's penalized grant them disadvantage and those could be combined in an opposed role skills in fifth edition i think that's kind of one of those sort of slightly contentious things i think one of the things about the community that we have a lot of people or players gms they fell out of the gaming from the old school and came straight back into fifth recently i think i'm not the only one i know beckelheimer um josh beckelheimer came through from 3.5 I have the fortune, misfortune, who knows, of having started in second edition, which had promote my proficiency, so I didn't have the non-skill version originally, have to be fair. But I moved through third edition, 3.5, uh, fourth edition, a bit of Pathfinder, and then through D&D Next into fifth edition. So I've seen the whole gamut all the way through. So talk very briefly, a little side rant, about the evolution of skills. So in second edition, if you went for the non-weapon proficiency system rather than secondary skill system, or just the, you could still use the roll under stats for everything in that one, then that brought in this idea that basically you have points you spend on non-weapon proficiencies, and there wasn't many. I think you had like four or five, maybe a bit less, depending on your character class. Don't ask me to quote it. There's a table in the PA player's handbook about it that you could then pick. And it was a roll under system. Um, so basically it was your stat, and your non-weapon proficiencies where you stat plus or minus so many points, depending on how difficult the skill was meant to be. And that, because it was roll under, it meant if you had a high that you pretty much succeeded with quite a level of frequency in those tests and that was kind of a very i felt kind of quick and dirty system that kind of did what it needed to do it just added a bit of flavor to your character added a bit of idea behind them having skills and not all being combat based so what then happened was when third edition came out <clears throat> and the unified system they totally revolutionized skills and essentially what you had is this was now a roll everything was a roll up system everything was a roll g20 add a bonus try and beat a target number so that meant that what happened was you had a much expanded, well, I guess it wasn't an expanded list of skills. It was more defined list of skills, but they were all on your character sheet rather than being ones you selected from various resources. And so you sort of had a set amount of skills that were on that sheet. And then you could spend so many points at first level, etc. And as you leveled up, you added to it. Now that meant there was escalating skill abilities. When you get to 20th level, you're rolling plus 23 just for the skill points and a skill if you maxed it out plus your stat bonus so you're talking about difficulty levels of like 30 odd needed to be a challenge usually um, if you're playing it and that was an issue that did come about with that one but and there's also really complicated things with skill synergies where if you had one skill at a certain level it added bonuses to another skill and it got very complicated but it meant you if you loved those things and i was really into it you could really tweak your characters and you were very strategic about what you put your skill points and made sure you always had at least like five points in these skills to get your synergy bonuses etc etc 
And that kind of worked for what it was. Now what happened when fourth edition came out is they kept the skills, but again, they simplified it back as well. And I believe the stretch of my memory a bit that they kind of did a similar system to fifth edition where you had your proficiency bonus on those as well. But again, it was an escalating bonus with that one as you leveled up. And again, that numbers for difficulty class were higher. Now what fourth edition did, I think, to try and combat the fact that there was these escalating difficulty classes when you became super uber, super humanly competent and things is they kind of, uh, fudged it a bit by fudging your bonus. I'm trying to remember what it was now, which way around they did it. My mind's gone blank. They did have a fudge factor in it anyway, because this came out when we talked about Romance of the Perilous Lands, about how they tried to do it. And the more competent you became, things became more difficult based on that. And it kind of tried to fudge that superhuman thing. So with 5th edition, and we played through the play test, and I showed Colin this the other day, I showed him some pictures from the playtest material. At one point in time, they had optional ideas for rules where um, rather than originally having a flat bonus, you had a proficiency dice. So when you were at levels, it was a D4, then it upgraded to D6, then a D8, then a D10, I think was the highest it went to. And when you were proficient in the skill, you rolled your D20 and that dice. Now that is still in... I think I said before in the DMG is an optional rule if you want to use that one I said and I kind of like that and um, what they've done with the proficiency bonus in fifth edition is they've flattened it out a lot more it doesn't escalate as quickly as it used to so you're not becoming superhumanly escalated I think the fourth edition one again stretch of memory because I haven't done my fifth, fourth edition game yet so I have to go back and have a look was that it was something like half your level your proficiency bonus maybe minimum one so basically by 20th level you had plus 10 to skill so that's still quite a lot whereas I think in fifth edition it's maybe plus five six at the highest level Colin help me out here because you might know because I've not looked at fifth edition for a while yeah but anyway it's not as high and so the difficult numbers are a bit lower so what it means is that essentially even at a lower level character, there's still a good chance of you doing something difficult. And even if you're a higher level, there's still a fairly decent chance of failing. And I think it kind of tries to balance as you increase in level, you should be getting better at things, but there's not this like ridiculous escalation of points to the point where, you know, simple tasks, you know, even difficult tasks become super easy for you because you've got so many points and something, etc. And the joy of the D20 system is you can always have that 5% chance of always failing and 5% chance of always succeeding with the D20 role, no matter what the difficulties are. Um, I think to go on your other point about everyone having a pop at it, one of the things that third edition brought in was the idea of, um, I want to say it's trained and untrained skills. You had class skills and cross-class skills, but you also had trained and untrained. So trained skills were skills you could only do if you were trained. So for example, anyone can listen, anyone can spot, anyone can search, because it's just like basic things as human beings, you can give a go at trying. But not everyone can roll knowledge arcana, because either you've studied ancient lore about magic, or you haven't. So either you know something about it, or you don't. And um, obviously, there are exceptions. People might say there's people with general knowledge, and there were things like bardic knowledge. I think there was like jack of all trades and things, you know, feats that you could take to kind of replicate that to some degree. But generally speaking, it was kind of there, I think, as a bit of niche protection for some of the skills um, and like for example the thief skill only thieves with search ability of a certain level could find certain traps of a certain difficulty class whereas other people just couldn't find those ones because they're too expertly built for them to spot and so again it was a niche protection sort of baked into the system there and um, so what fifth edition does is it allows it but then takes that proficiency bonus away so again that's in the way of balancing it so it's almost the same idea that, you know, unless you've got points in it, you don't get as good a thing. But, you know, it's one of those. But I, I do kind of like the way, I think first edition was attempting to compromise. It was a little bit of, this is why I think some people don't like it for that reason, that there was a bit of trying to keep some of the things in it that some of the players liked, whereas not making it too complicated to put off the players who didn't like it. So third edition skill system, I can imagine, put a lot of people off because it was very complicated, very intricate. There was lots of, like, said synergies and things, lots of combinations, lots of points to spend. And I think that was a real put off for some people, whereas a lot of people I generally like the idea of having these non-combat skills in there. And to kind of go back to something Jason said about that interview with Ireland while his calling, that, you know, there is a reasonable argument to be said around, you know, if you have to roll for combat, why do you not have to roll for other things? And if you can have special combat abilities, special styles of fighting, whatever, and how the system works it, why would you not have some things around skills, etc.? cetera? Um, and skills are a very good framework. Like you said, they're there for, I guess, inspiring more than anything else. And, you know, to be heretical once again, you know, if you don't feel skills that you should have are reflected in those rules, you can always add them in. Dare I say, if you think something's not covered by something, can you not just, you know, homebrew a skill that's not in there, add it to some sort of background or whatever? Um, Jason's point becomes a bit pricklier that, you know, because the rule, the skills are limited a lot more in D&D about how many you can take. And maybe you couldn't build yourself a competent character using the skill or rather a character that reflects more you feel what they should have. 
from it but again it comes down to that dreaded word of balance it's about those ideas about you know if you argued your fighter should know half the skills and system then everybody would argue they would have the skill system and that everybody would be proficient at most of the things in the game and yeah maybe that might be slightly more realistic but does it take away from each protection does it affect the fun i don't know because at the end of the day it's a game as well as a simulation to be heretical again on that one that you know you are meant to be having fun it's meant to be a bit of a collaborative thing so the idea behind a lot of it is that if only certain people can take certain skills or you're limited to the skills you have to have other players with you budding up who've got things so they've got their little time to shine the limelight their ability to try stuff and so there's a bit of a balance in there and i guess is what's come out of the, the play test and things anyway and um, that you know people kind of want that thing i believe in a general sense of people not that i know any of these people <coughs> that want to have it so that you know you've all got your thing you've all got options to pick some things to have as your special things but then you need your other people with their special things to play with to have that nice all around mix behind it I think that's one of the key ethos we have to have around the RPGs is they are meant to be collaborative games. So the idea is to bring people together and play. And so those things, I guess, exist. The limits are maybe there in some way to kind of encourage you to have players. This is a big guesswork on my part. I've not asked Wizards of the Coast, so that was part of the design philosophy. But I think that would exist in the setting. You know, if you get into the MMO type things, you know, that's why you have your players who are good at combat, defensing, buffing, debuffing and things. Because, it, you know, if it's in that whole thing about if you've got your four characters in a the party, they've all got their role to play. So I think there's some element of that. But I mean, to get back to the original point, I, I do kind of tend to agree. I, I do like the way the fifth edition does it because it's not a fully skill-based system. It is D&D at the end of the day. It's mainly, to be honest, focused around the combat type thing and your main sort of primary stats. I like the way that it allows those stat bonuses to play, has something that goes up as you level up so you feel like you're progressing because of your background and your class, you get to pick certain skills that you're like before proficient at, which kind of should, in theory, match the ethos of your character design. It kind of does it in a very sort of quick and dirty way to get what you want, but it is there and it's fairly fairly intuitive. I feel fairly sort of quick to the point and then gives you what you want and it does sort of feel like, you know, someone who's proficient, especially at the high levels, will be better than someone who's non-proficient. I mean, it's slightly fudged by the, you know, the skill that ability check levels but at the end of the day that option is still there um one of the things that i want to bring in going back to gurps a little bit was that systems like gurps do also have that so gurps for example um has a whole host of skills but what it also has in gurps is that anyone can try most skills it's like what they call a default level and that is again gurps is no one's based it's a role under system so again it's based on your ability scores first of all but say difficult skills are like at iq minus six etc so basically that's much, because it's role under that makes it harder um and but if you're skilled you sort of go up six points so it's easier for someone who's skilled than someone who's non-skilled so almost anyone can have a pop at most skills there are a few that don't have defaults. Um, GURPS gets complicated if you really drill down into it. And I'll talk about this a bit later in the podcast about how some of those things are managed if you've got skills that can be used in place of other skills, etc. But the idea is that, that that's kind of the thing I like. The idea that, you know, there's a skill framework there, but it also allows for people who maybe haven't picked those skills to still have a try at something. So therefore, your character might still be good at something. And that kind of expands that thing, I guess. Go back to Jason's point about you being competent at something, even though it's not a skill you've picked. If you could argue, well, a player might know this piece of information, you can still roll an intelligence check. You just might not get proficiency bonus because it's not something you pick specifically, or there might be a modifier to it because, yeah, you might know something about it, but it's not your main field of interest. So therefore, you might not be as up in it. It's like almost like a lay knowledge rather than a, you know, academic knowledge on something, should we say. Anyway, 10 minutes have rambled on too much. I uh, shall now move on. So thank you for my call in. So that was from Jason's from Nerd RPG Variety Cast and two from Colin Green from Spike Pit. So now to move on to my talk about maybe misunderstandings about girls, maybe they're not misunderstandings and a little bit about system expertise. So to cover the first topic on my sort of scheme for today was around GURPS. And when I talk about misunderstanding GURPS, I don't mean not knowing what it is. It's more about that, the criticism I always hear leveled at GURPS and my feelings about that. And the main one is about its complexity. GURPS is a complicated system, it's difficult to learn, there's too much stuff, it's overcomplicated, etc. All those ones we all hear. Now, there's an oversimplified view that I've heard from the designers, which I will challenge slightly as well as we go through this, where, but I do sort of agree with it, which is that, as you know, Steve Jackson will say himself, and I've heard Sean Punch say it as well, is that GURPS, at its heart, is a 3D6 system. You roll 3D6, you roll under a number, and you either sealed by lowering rolling under it or you fail by rolling over it. and it's as simple as that every single thing in GURPS tends to roll over on that same exact same mechanic it is always the same so this kind of fits into the thing I was saying before in those comments about you know the unified system for Dungeons and Dragons the d20 system that is you know you're keeping that same mechanic all the way through and that's the way it is and um, now 
That's true, but I would say that's an oversimplification because there is a bit more to it than that. If you read the GURPS rules, there's a bit more complexity around how you calculate those difficulty numbers, I guess, is the way to look at it. Now, I think where GURPS gets misunderstood is that it's seen as a complex system, a complicated system. But in actual fact, what I would say is it's a very complete, comprehensive system, but that doesn't mean it has to be complex. The... As I read through the rule books and also how to be a GURPS GM and also when you actually read what it says in the rule book, a lot of the things tell you that, you know, it's up to you what you use and what you don't use. And there's loads of tables for loads of different things, but they almost always say in the sections, you know, as a GM, use your common sense, you make a judgment call on it. However, if it helps, here are some tables for it. So it's almost like these tables and things are here mostly as guides. Now, I think the trap we fall into as players and GMs both, is that we want to use the things that are in the published material. If we see a table in a book, we feel the need we have to use that table. If there's a rule in the book, we feel we ought to stick by the rules. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, at the end of the day, that is a way to play the games. And I do say quite a few of the podcasts that sometimes it's good to try playing the game as raw. So rules is written, ARL and your own interpretation first, just to see how the designers envisioned it. And that's to get a sense of if you use it with all those bells and whistles, how does that actually run and does it run the way you expect it to? And if stuff you think is going to be rubbish or too complicated is rubbish and too complicated, then that's when you start homebrewing it. I'd always say don't prejudge things because you don't know how that's going to play out when you actually play it. And so from GURP's point of view, there's lots of things about um, familiarity with different things and specialism of things. And again, these are really, so uh, to break that one down, I guess, talk about skills. Skills get complicated when you look at different things. So first of all, if you've got, points in a skill it's quite simple because you have a number in your skill and that's it now it, some of the skills have specialties so say it's i think he uses earlier my example so say it's riding an animal so you have riding land riding air and say riding sea so you can put a specialty on it as to where you are now where that becomes complicated because it isn't initially because you have that in other games is that if you know how to ride a land animal there's what they call a familiarity where if you then ride a sea animal you'll be able to use that skill but at a lower level um, so it becomes slightly complicated when you start looking at things like that. There is things for, say, hand weapons, where, say, you know how to use a Glock, but you pick up a 38 revolver, that, depending on the level of detail you've got into for granularity, you could argue it's not exactly the same handgun, so you only got familiarity with it, so you're at a minus two to your skill with that one. And that's where it becomes a little bit complicated. Now, although those rules are in there, nine times out of ten, I would be like, bah. You know, if you're playing a cinematic game, if you're not worried about realism, would you even care about that? My answer is probably not. Just roll with it. Just give them the same skill and just roll with it. Excuse the pun. And just go with it. And I think that's the point where when they've made this game, it is a toolkit. It is there to have those layers of complexity in it. And combat's a prime example. Um, I mean, you there's a tactical combat section in the GURPS rules. There's even a whole book on tactical combat for GURPS that you can use, which goes to the nth degree about movement with hexes and turning and points spent doing this and doing that, and etc. Standing up from prone, all the rest of it and stuff. And it's not really, if you just read the base rules in GURPS, it's no more complicated than 3.5 D&D was for combat. Now, some people might say that's too complicated, but, you know, the option's there. And again, when I've played it, I know I've abstracted combat in the past with other people when we've played because that's how we prefer to play the combat. And I think that's the thing. The game doesn't force you to do it. No game book, and I've said this before about all games, there is no one when you're playing a game standing there with a gun to your head ready to pull the trigger if you don't do what it says in the rule book. You can change things. You can do it differently. And GURPS really, really encourages it. It really kind of says these are the core rules, but, you know, mess about with it, do what you want. And you see it in things like GURPS Light and GURPS Ultralight, where they take, strip those things really back to the basic levels. So as another example, one of the criticisms I do see, and I do kind of get it a bit with GURPS, is around the, the whiffiness, as it gets called, but it's the hitting mechanic where you roll to hit to see if you're potentially going to hit someone, and then that person gets an active defense. So it's like a dodge or a parry. The thing is, this is not an unusual mechanic. If you've ever played Frost Frostgrave, for example, when you do combat with that, you both roll to see who hits. So you roll and they roll, and whoever gets higher hits the other person. That's the way that works in combat sort of in Frostgrave. So two people rolling is not really unusual in that sense. It does mean that, as has come up, that when I looked at the probability, because I'm a probability nerd, and I did a big spreadsheet on it, that... Um, if someone's got good active defense, even if you're really good at combating, then they are quite good at stopping you, or even slightly above average defense, they can stop it. But then if you get good at GURPS, there's a tactical element behind that where you can get around some of that, which I'll go into a little bit when I talk about the understanding a system completely. But say, for example, if you do like a faint, faint maneuver, you can throw someone off their defense next turn and make some harder defense, you're more likely to stab them. And with GURPS, you can take people down fairly quickly. It's not really initially geared towards cinematics so you know with hit points and things you can take people down fairly rapidly again talking about complexities there are things around about the damage of weapons for example 
impaling weapons do more damage once you get past armor than crushing weapons do. And again, this is one of the things that I read it and I think, yeah, but I've seen this exist in things like D&D. There's been optional rules in D&D about our varying armor classes for various weapons and stuff. So it's not that GURPS is the first thing to introduce it. It's not like it's the only one that covers this. But there are people out there who want that. People who want to say, well, leather armor shouldn't protect you as well against this kind of weapon as that weapon. And, you know, if someone stabs you with a spear, it should do more damage than a slash from a knife and all those kind of things and about how that should be affected. But the penetration, rent armor, etc., all that kind of things. And so all systems do this. Now, again, that's in the rules. You could choose to ignore it. It's possibly taking away something from the system if you do do that. As a little bit about how you compensate for that because there's different damage rolls that you make for those different attacks and if you change one thing you affect another thing but again same as DD, if you start messing around with things like that um so but there are those options there and it's about again how much level of detail you want to go into and how it's appropriate i think the more cinematic you make the game the more streamlined you want to make it the more stuff you should just hand wave but i think the important thing with gurps you need to have that conversation beforehand and this is the thing about GURPS as a toolkit. I know this gets leveled a little bit at, interestingly, it gets leveled at ICRPG, which is very rules light. Like GURPS, which can be fairly rules heavy if you choose to implement everything that's in there, is the fact they are both toolkits. So the idea behind both of those games is you don't read the rules back to front and then try and throw in everything, or it doesn't even tell you necessarily how to use everything. It tells you how to use everything in GURPS, technically speaking. But I guess it doesn't tell you what you should be using in your particular setting. It's up to you to make those minds up. Now, ICRPG comes around this by having things like you know the settings they've got there for example altered state and josh beckelheimer who commented on it being a toolkit did say that altered state actually explains stuff much better and he understood it better from that point of view and again if you look at gurps they've now got the dungeon fantasy rpg and if you buy those sets of books that kind of streamlines the skills and magic and stuff specific to that setting and that therefore makes it probably make a lot more sense of how it should be done from that sort of point of view but if you just get it from the base rules, because it is designed to be generic, it's not always easy to interpret that. And I think that's a danger of a, a toolkit. And I, I mentioned it before, but I had the original version of Fudge, which Che Webster's also got, which is the system that Fates eventually derived from. And Fates similar to this as well. But, you know, if you've got all these rules with optional extras and lots of different ways you can do things, I mean, Fudge was very much a case of, oh, hit points can be done this way or it can be done that way. And it was very much about hit points as actual points, hit points as damage levels, hit points as checkboxes. And so it gave you loads of different options. And that can be a bit overwhelming if you're not used to designing your own games and tinkering with things. Um, and GURPS can be a bit like that, I think, as well, and possibly ICRPG, because you're not, you're not spoon-fed, basically, how it needs to be. You're kind of given all these options of how it could be. And I guess that's the difficulty of those systems. And that's, I think, why GURPS gets misunderstood quite a lot, because GURPS Lite as a rule set is 32 pages. 32 pages for everything you need to do to run a basic GURPS game. And okay, that doesn't go too much into psionics and magic, etc., and all the rest of it, but it has the basics for running games. And if you read How to Be a GURPS GM, it recommends that if you run and play your first games, it's probably best not to do a game with magic in it and just try and learn how the basic rules work. And then from that, you can kind of build on it. And it's probably more important for the GM than the players because as a player, as long as your GM knows the system, it can help. And I guess that's my next point, really. It's about, you know, part of this, and this is what I'm hoping when I get into running a bit more GURPS and playing it, is that a system can be really simplified or rather can run a lot more smoothly despite complexities and completeness behind it if you're actually a GM that understands it. So like I said, my thing about GURPS is I don't think it's a complicated system. I think it's a complete system. I think it's a system, comprehensive system is probably a better word, where Steve Jackson and Sean Punch and Dave Pulver really try to cover as much as they can in the system so that the options are all there for you. Basically, there's enough rules, almost rules for everything because it's been built over such a long time and they have got loads of expansive settings that basically the options are there for you to pull on those, but it doesn't mean you have to use them. You don't have to use it the way it is. I mean, the game has so many variations in the magic system. It shows you it's up to you how you want to run magic. You make up your own system if you find their magic system complicated. And the idea is you can tinker and tailor with it. Um, and again, from the combat system, go around in circles a little bit here if you look at GURPS Ultralight if you don't like the dodging and parrying and things there is an option there for how you can do the skill differently so rather than being two people rolling what happens is you use a factor of their skill at dodging and parrying and use that as a modifier to your skill to hit and that might mean you hit more often but it does mean that there is actually bonuses to actually having high levels of skill in those things so i won't go into too much of detail of that but that's an option i have considered if i find it's a bit irritating doing the two rolling thing because it might do and um, but to keep those skills still kind of relevant and that's kind of the tinkering that goes on in the background uh, which might make it feel a bit more osr for lack of a better term <laughs> by making the combat a bit more streamlined but keeping some of those things in there so anyway, let's talk about expertise in a gaming system. So what do you mean about expertise in the system? Well, this kind of comes from something that Joe Richter said the other day in his podcast, Hindsight List. So go and check it out if you've not seen it or heard it, rather. Um, 
which is he talked about Pathfinder 1, about being a system that he knows encyclopedically backwards and forwards. And I guess I really not empathize. It resonated with me when I felt back to 3.5. So D&D 3.5 and the revised third edition is that I know any day now you could say, well, let's run a game and throw stuff down and I can pretty much pick it up straight away. Wouldn't have to go back through the book. Wouldn't have to, might have to double check a couple of things when we're playing along, but mostly I could just pick that game up straight away. And part of the reason for that is in theory, I played second edition probably longer when I was younger, but I've run more third edition and I came at third edition as it came out and picked it up as it came along. And for whatever reason, third edition or 3.5 i should say D has stuck in my head a lot more and when i played pathfinder it was essentially the same game dare i say it with a few more things added on don't tell joe joe don't don't shout at me for saying that but you know it is essentially what it's based on quite strongly because people were fed up with fourth edition i want to go back to 3.5 and make a few tweaks to it and i've said before i like some of the changes pathfinder made but anyway with third edition i felt like you know i just kind of got so intimate with the system got into the integrity with it so much and so many understanding of how the feats all fit together that knowledge doesn't tend to have faded. Bits have faded around the edges and stuff, and I don't say I remember all the synergies, etc., all the rest of it, but I have enough of an understanding that I know I can throw myself into it any moment and do it. Now, that's actually more so than second edition, even though I'm going back and playing through second edition. Something about third edition has stuck to my head more, even though, randomly, it's not the system I would choose to play. I'd rather choose to play second over third because I've decided I'm not too into kind of where third went, and I prefer, and I don't know how much of this is nostalgia. I've said it before that, I'd rather go with second edition. So I'm going back into second edition and my plan is to get into it with second edition and kind of reach to the point where I feel second edition now is third edition. I mean, one of the things I guess with third edition over second edition, got a slight rant, side tan, is that there are more rules for stuff than second edition. So it's a case of actually having those defined rules where I think in second you have to make a lot more rulings. And as an older person now, you know, I kind of feel like a more experienced GM, I can kind of make those decisions. Um, so my next point, I guess, was to say I'm, I'm working on the series also with GURPS. GURPS is a system I've wanted to run for a long, long time. I have some good memories of playing it when I was younger. Someone I used to play with or game with was really into it, although I wasn't a big fan of him, particularly as a GM. Um, probably more as a person. <laughs> as a GM, he was all right as a GM, to be fair. Um, but I do want to get back into it because as a system, it really does resonate with me what it's trying to do. And, you know, I was put a little bit off by, and this is why I hate sometimes negativity. I hate snobbery in gaming. I said this before, snobbery in gaming really annoys me because people will slag off your system, see how terrible it's the worst thing ever, or blah, blah, it's this, it's that. Whereas, and I think it was Ron Laws that said this, that, you know, you ought to say, I don't like the system because for me, it doesn't do this, or, you know, I'm not a big fan of it, et cetera. Whereas when people are really, really negative about the system, and there's a lot of negativity out there about GURP saying, oh, it's this and it's that. And that's preloaded my brain with a lot of set judgments. And I'm glad I fought against it. And when I've gamed with Che and a few things, it has really kind of opened my eyes to the sense that actually it's not all these things. Um, and so I'm hoping by becoming intimate with GURPS, getting a bit more in-depth in into it and understanding those rules better, that that expertise will mean it becomes a simpler system for me to run and for players to play. Um, so to get back to what I said in the previous segment, this is part of my key is that... The hard part with GURPS is if you don't understand GURPS real, you've not played enough of it, you've not run enough games, then trying to carry players through it will be harder because, you know, if they say, well, what about this, what about that? And you have to read through reams of books and try and understand it yourself, that breaks the flow. Whereas if you can say, oh, that's just this, or don't worry about it, or, you know, well, what you do is you threw a few points and this happens and that happens, your confidence in the system will give them confidence in playing it. That's my experience. You understanding the system well enough and being able to guide them by the hand makes it better. And I found this with 3.5 that because I knew with 3.5 so well, if someone says, oh, I'm not sure what to do with this character, they'll be like, well, have you thought about putting points in this? Because that means you'll get a bonus. And that one will be like, oh yeah, I want to do that. Then that's really good. And that kind of really, you know, it, it gives them energy and it helps you feel good as a GM. It helps them feel good as a player knowing they've done something that's really good with a character. And um, Che talks about, I'm wrestling Che a lot on this podcast. He talks a lot about, in his podcast about beginnings, about, you know, options about making characters. One is the pre-gen. I think the pre-gen is quite a good idea for the first time you play GURPS. Have a pre-generated character. Someone's done all the work for you. They kind of talk through the design. I mean, what GURPS is good for, I've seen this in a few supplements now, is that some of the pre-gens, they have little boxes, which are the design philosophy, and it talks about why they've picked the things they've picked for the character. And I think that's really instrumental for anyone who wants to play more GURPS, understand it, because it kind of talks some of the meta behind it. And okay, some of us don't like meta, don't like to go to the level. But you know, if it says, oh, by the way, this character's got a signature move, which is these things they do, you then think, oh, that's quite cool. I'll use that when I play. And then you understand then how that rule works in game. And then when you make your own character, you can choose to use it or you can choose not to use it. And it's those pre-gens with that design philosophy in place that will kind of show it. And so it does, behind the scenes, potentially go to something a bit more complicated. But really, once you get the concept in your head, it's not complicated. It's just like, you know, 
an idea. So for example, signature moving groups is that, you know, as I said before, groups is quite a complete system. So there's lots of options you can have about building things. So there's like lots of moves you can effectively chain together. If it was played Yu-Gi-Oh! card game, you'll understand chains. Um, so basically you can chain some moves together to do something pretty cool. Now the problem is that if you then each time have to read up on these chain moves and work out what the modifiers are, it becomes a pain in the backside. So what they've done is they've said, well, how about instead of having to keep looking up chains, you pick some signature moves and these are combinations of combos that you pick for your character to do that's something they're really good at and then what happens if you put points in it you then get a bonus to do it but then it always says in your character sheet you do this and this and this and this is the modifier for what you roll and then what you have to do is you don't then have to look it up every time you just know that's what you're going to do and you roll that dice for that modifier and then you just do the thing you were going to do and it sort of takes all that bookkeeping out of the way you don't have to keep going backwards and forwards and you spend points in it but you get a mechanical bonus based on it but it then means you don't have to keep dragging the gm back to the book and i quite like that idea because it meant that you're not taking away the complexity from the rules by taking out those modifiers you're not fudging it to say oh just roll some dice and i'll tell you if you succeed or not because there's that hand waving which some people don't like but you do get a slight bonus on it because you're going to invest character points and character points should always be used for something you're going to get a benefit from but it kind of speeds the system up and that's something you might not know about if you're not an expert in the system so again if you're a gm have used the system enough to see the signature move thing come out you can advise players to use it and help explain to it how it works and then help them build those characters so again this is option two that che talked about about as a gm helping people build their characters and i think when you've got some players have got a bit of experience this is the other key thing behind it because there's one thing to say to player here you go 250 points here's a group so we could go off and build someone that's a bit intimidating when you read all the skills and things when you're there but i think if you're intimate with the system you as a gm can say right you tell me about the character tell me who you want to build and let's go through it together and let's build you this character and make sure you've got the character you want when we build it and that to me is probably key with GURPS a lot of the settings and the systems for it to to get the person what they want without them having to know all the rules but you as a gm if you know the rules you can do that for we not do that for them you can help guide them in a really constructive way now one of the things fourth edition did and i love fourth edition for this and this is what's kind of sold me back on the system again is that they are brought in templates. So there's two kind of templates, essentially. There's profession templates, so effectively character classes, dare I say it, and race templates. So what they basically have done is that rather than you decide, well, I want to play, so to use the fantasy setting, for example, I want to play a knight, I want to play a fighter, a barbarian, or whatever, rather than you having to then work out in your head, well, should I have higher this, higher that, whatever, it basically has most of that done out for you. So it has a base you know, base stats, base sort of skills, base advantages that you should probably have. It then has options about, well, pick 60 points from this, 20 points from that, etc. And it's a bit like when you're picking your backgrounds in 5th edition, say that you pick the skills you want from it and stuff, and you kind of mix and match a few things. Now, depending on the template and the system and the points value, sometimes, because Dungeon Fantasy RPG, you use up all of them in that process. It may let you use up all 250 points to make a 250-point character. Um, whereas in some of them, it maybe only uses half your points and leaves you a bit of time to tinker with things. And so again, templates are quite good for, for building that sort of level of how much the players want autonomy around it when they make the characters but what it does mean is you don't have to go groping through the book reading through 600 million advantages and stuff to then decide which one you want now again i'm using dungeon fantasy as an example of this because this is where i see it done really really well dungeon fantasy also then has at the end of the character class kind of description profession character class profession don't get sucked into it it also says for example if you want to play a knight who's good at riding a horse and doing jousting Bad example you probably find the actual examples might read them in a minute that you know you can you should pick this 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 and this make sure you have these things and then it even tells you which options you can pick it doesn't say you have to it just says if this is what you're thinking you want your character to pick these things and that to me again is that really good thing about basically it talks you through that character creation process and so i find making characters with dungeon fantasy rpg you can run them off really really quickly because half that stuff's kind of there for you. You have to make a few choices as you move along. And again, if you're directed by a GM, it's a lot faster. And again, that's intimacy with the system. So if you're a GM who knows the system, you can build templates for your settings. So if you do a sci-fi setting and you want to make Marines, you want to make Scouts, I mean, even ask your players what they want, you can start building templates for them and give them some sort of idea about what they might want for that character, stealing things from other sources. And it's about not railroading your characters, players into having particular characters or particular things, but it gives them some idea of how they want to work it. And you, they don't have to stop tweaking them. Um, I'm very keen at on for GURPS point of view making a simplified character sheet because a lot of the stuff that's on the main character because I think the character sheet puts people off is bookkeeping stuff it's all points for points value and all the rest of it stuff but when you play in the game you don't need to know how many points your strength costs or your dex costs whatever because that's all the background from character creation you don't need it when you're rolling the dice 
And so again, I think these are the things that as a GM experienced GM, you probably realize you don't need to have that on there. So I always want to do a, a basic character sheet that just has the information the players need to play, etc. So anyway, before I go off on a tangent about how I'm planning on messing around with GURPS, the key thing there is I feel that if you become an expert in your system, and you know it. And I suspect this goes for systems I'm not too keen on, like Champions, say, for example, that, you know, if if the system resonates with you and you get really good with it, then you can actually make the ride a lot easier for your players and your players will probably enjoy the system a lot more. And that's my hope with GURPS, I guess, that if I can play it enough or run it enough and get enough experience of it, that I can make that whole process a lot easier for the players and therefore we don't have this problem of them feeling like it's a complicated system and it's really complex that you know if we can explain you know either through the pre-gens or making the characters together what all the skills do and stuff they'll just know them when they play what they need to roll and what that means um, and i can do a lot of the stuff in the background in my head as a gm and they just don't have to worry about it i think most players just want to say i want to do this you just tell them what they need to roll and they just roll it really um, and you know some people want to know how that works and therefore that's up to them well not up to them but that's where you can then you know teach them the intricacies they really want to know some people just want to turn up and roll some dice and just go on hitting things and they're not too bothered about where the numbers come from potentially so yeah i guess i want to say about expertise so i kind of really resonate with what joe richter said on hindsight was about pathfinder one but mine's more from 3.5 that's the system i just really kind of got and i could get into um, and i'm hoping to get that with gurps and i think that's the thing i think if you are an expert in your system you can make that experience easier for the players the players just kind of feel stuff rattles off a lot faster because let's face it as a gm you're the one who's doing a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to combat and stuff the players will just say i want to do this and you have to hear and hear and tell them how that's going to work it's not really them they don't need to know it's good if they do know it but i don't think they always necessarily need to know the rules you can just explain to them as long as they're happy to accept you can only do this because of the rules and you know you can briefly explain it to them then they'll learn it from that point of view so anyway i think that's it for me on expertise of the system excuse thanks for my podcast today clearly i have a lot to say on gurps anyway if anyone has any comments or questions or if you disagree jason you know you want to ring in and disagree with some of these things feel free to call in and let me know and um, you can use anchor to leave me a message or you can email me at gmshadow@hotmail.com. nobody ever does though or come and catch me on twitter at gmshadow i'm available at gmshadow in most places so please come and find me. Last thing I want to leave you with is to say, Jason, you record it in the rain, but you know, it's good to know that it never really rains in this country. In the UK, we're nice and sunny all the time. Isn't that right? What, Colin, what's that you're saying? Well, I was going to record you a message, Barry, but I don't know if you can hear that. Another day's gardening down the pan. <laughs>